0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now. Well, my guest today is Levy Roach has written a book about the Normans. And as always, of course, we begin opening this podcast with how did you come across studying the Normans in the first place?
0: So I first actually came across the Normans initially at the start of my career as a specialist in the Anglo-Saxons in England, so the Normans' predecessors, and so it's in that guise that I first met the Normans as this force that comes in and conquers and transforms English society as we move into the Central Middle Ages. How I came to then write a book about the Normans and kind of pursue them further was a wider interest in kind of understanding how we move from the world of the early to the central Middle Ages, or basically how we move into a world that most listeners probably would associate with the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. so a world in which we have castles, in which we have knights, in which we have all of these kinds of phenomena, in which we have a, an aristocracy across Europe sharing certain cultural values and things like that. Mm-hmm. None of that existed in the early Middle Ages. All of that's a product of the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. And one of the main motors for these changes was the Normans, their conquests, but also their cultural contacts. Because the Normans were not only active in the British Isles, um, uh, but also very active in southern Italy, in the Holy Lands, at times in Iberia, in North Africa, and indeed even in Britain. They were active outside England, in Wales and Scotland. They were active over in Ireland as well. And so the picture we traditionally think of the Normans as being kind of Northern French and they be active in England is a very restricted one that doesn't do justice to quite the kind of transformative uh, power they had and the degree to which they catalyzed uh, these sorts of changes that would leave uh, a really indelible legacy on uh, European history.
1: And um, something I think is just, I feel like this is kind of relevant before we go into the Normans itself and... Well, do you call, because we discussed this with Charlemagne in our episode on him, is it French, is it German, or is he, you know, what would you call the Normans, would you call them in a French history or Scandinavian history or British history even? Well, in a sense,
0: these modern categories fall down here, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to look at the Normans in the round, rather than as a, a British phenomenon, a French phenomenon, an Italian phenomenon, even at times a German phenomenon or Scandinavian phenomenon, they were in a sense all of these things. At various different points and in different contexts, Mm. so that's probably the straightest answer for that. If we're trying to get at, in this period, what are the Normans culturally like, at least by the late 10th, early 11th century, so once they've been settled about a hundred years in France, in northern France initially, they are culturally speaking primarily French, they are Francophone, they are speaking a dialect of French. That doesn't mean that Scandinavian heritage that we'll come on to talk about isn't important to them and their identity, but in practice, the kinds of cultural forms the Normans take with them to England, to Wales, to Scotland, to Ireland, to southern Italy, or ones very similar from those of their neighbours in northern France, very similar to those that you would have seen in Anjou in this period, for example, or um, uh, in the Ile de France near Paris.
1: So, of course, let's talk about the origins of the Normans, and the name kind of is self-explanatory, maybe they are from Scandinavian origin, so how did they end up in France, in what would later become Normandy?
0: Yes, well, as you say, the, 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 the key thing to bear in mind is that that term Norman, as, you, as you're alluding to there, comes from the term Northman. And we kind of lose this in modern English, where we have two completely different terms. Norman means from Normandy in northern France, and Northman means, you know, as a synonym for Viking medieval Scandinavia. But for contemporaries, these were the same two terms and there was a kind of studied ambiguity, and this is actually maintained in many modern European languages, so like French, or German, Norman, Norman, can be Northmen or Normans. Um, and so there is this dual valence, and this is because this is a force that's originally a group of uh, uh, Viking raiders um, and freebooters active in northern France, who then settle. And the key thing here is that um, a treaty is formed between this Viking group that's been active on the upper reaches of the Seine, probably around um, uh, Rouen, which goes on to be the later ducal capital of Normandy. So it's a group that's been active there for a good amount of time, Um, uh, probably a skion of what we call the Great Army, that had been very active in British Isles and conquered much of England initially. Um, and it then also besieged Paris famously in the 880s. So this was a very, very large group, but it, it tended to splinter in smaller bits at times then coalesce back together and new people joined it over time. So this was this kind of big, big, though very important army that, that had a major impact on um, particularly England, but also on parts of northern France. And one of these groups under a leader later known as Rollo at the time would have been for. Of course, you've got a
1: famous story with Rollo in the King's Court.
0: Exactly. So he did this is this legendary founder figure. He seems he's emerged as leader at least of one of these groups that's broken off from this army that are active in the northern region of the Seine and are initially again known in contemporary sources as the Northmen of the Seine, the Seine Valley Northmen, because there's other groups like them active in France. There's another big group on the Loire, the other major ri- river of kind of northern France in, in this period. But they are de facto kind of living there raiding. Applying their trade there, and the then king of uh, West Francia, or what we now start to call France, this kingdom that becomes the medieval kingdom of France, a chap called Charles the Simple, then cuts a deal with Rollo, which is that he'll give him, he'll cede him this land, parts of which Rollo and his men probably already control, but he'll formally give them these lands if they convert to Christianity, and if they submit themselves to his authority. And so he's basically granting them a part of his kingdom to run autonomously, uh, and we have this in some of the charters, the legal documents he's used in later years. He, one of them, he mentions that that he's giving a church all of these lands, except those in the lands of the north. So there's a clear sense that actually I don't even run those areas anymore. But the crucial bit is provided they convert and are loyal to him. So it's a matter of kind of integrating them into his society. Um, and he's trying to use them in his specific case as a counterweight. He's a king who struggled for power and authority. And he's using these new... Um, uh, uh, this Viking group as a counterweight to some of the other powers at court uh, and buying their favourite Viking land and crucially of course Normandy is on the coast and what he gives them is less in size than the later Duchy of Normandy but is within later Normandy and is this strip along the coast and again the other reason why he's doing this is uh, partly where they're active already but it means that they are then aligned to defence against any other Viking group so the kind of classic trick of uh, setting a thief to catch a thief What who better to defend against Vikings than Vikings themselves.
1: So before Christianity, did they worship Thor, Odin and Norse mythology at this time?
0: Yes, yeah, so they would have worshipped a number of those traditional Old Norse gods, but it's important that we bear in mind that paganism would have been very variable and highly localized. So when we, in a kind of modern, We have modern conceptions of the old Norse pantheon that often has a kind of very ordered world where they all have Thor and they all have Odin and they all have all of these different ones and Freyr. But actually, when we look to kind of place names, for example, that suggest veneration of these um, uh, different figures, they're often quite localized. So it's quite clear that some of these gods were worshipped much more intensely in certain parts of Scandinavia.
1: Yeah. So they wouldn't
0: necessarily all have worshipped exactly the same way. And because paganism, unlike Christianity, isn't kind of an exclusive religion, it's not an exclusive cult, you know, in that sense, if you moved regions, you might take up, you know, oh, I'm moving to an area where they worship Thor more. And they, they often also ha- would have local gods to it or an idea that some gods might have a closer attachment to a certain region. So there was very much, it, it's much more a kind of flexible religion. And of course, that's one of the reasons why at least in the early stages of conversion we often see and probably are seeing as well in Normandy. What scholars call syncretism—that is when they combine the beliefs of the two—because for a pagan, oh, you have a god called, you know, Christ, or you call your god Christ. We, you say, we should worship him too. Okay, we'll worship him alongside. Hmm. And but I he wanted to—I to try to, know, try to draw yeah.
1: too. I want to kind of draw a comparison to ancient Greece here, because you mentioned that, and I, this, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this myself when until you mentioned this, but in ancient Greece as well, in Herodotus, he mentioned that they worshipped, it wasn't all Greek mythology, same place. It was different cities where they worshipped, for example, Zeus or, so it's kind of a similar to ancient Greece mythology, wasn't it?
0: Exactly. It's very similar to ancient Greek paganism or Roman paganism in, in, in terms of how the systems would have operated is that people would have worshipped multiple gods, but not always the same ones. They wouldn't all have necessarily possessed exactly the same myths. There are certain myths that seem to be quite widespread, Thor's hammer and things like that. But again, they, they, there would be variations on, on, on their ideas and who they consider the most important god would vary. Uh, and that wouldn't necessarily be contradictions. contradiction. Some of them might disagree as to who's more important, but also... A lot of that they would have probably resolved as, oh, well, yes, in that region you do worship Odin more, more more actively. That's because he has special care for it, or that's because you specialize in these sorts of things. So it would have been quite uh, uh, a variable experience. So uh, all North Scandinavian paganism would have varied depending upon the individual you're asking. Not everyone in the army would have worshipped exactly the same way.
1: So... With the treaty with Charles and the conversion to Christianity, how well did it work for Charles? Did they leave him alone or did they kind of continue to plunder him? Was it sort of an alliance there? The short version is it works quite well for him in terms of the way the alliance works. So this war settles,
0: they convert to Christianity, there's no immediate short-term problems with that. Um, And in later years, when Charles ends up in a lot of political hot water with his other magnates, they are amongst his most loyal supporters. So politically speaking, it is broadly a success. But at least in terms of the deal struck, it's not quite so clear that in the wider political context, it's necessarily a wise wing. But obviously, settling Scandinavians, Viking raiders who've been attacking parts of the kingdom previously is not always popular with everyone. And there are certainly hints in some of our later sources that some of the upset that we see with Charles that leads to his him being in a major rebellion and him being um, overthrown in the 920s. One of the contributing factors, there may well be his alliance with these previously pagan um, still probably in many cases, pagan at hard uh, raiders that not everyone sees as natural friends or allies. So it may well, it's not the only thing that's going wrong for him, but he settles them because he has problems with his magnates, and they don't really help him solve those problems, they merely provide allies for trying to confront those problems when they arise.
1: And again, I want to draw a comparison here because when the Jew, a lot of Jews later history, that when they converted to Christianity, they would still be looked at as, as Jews. Was this a case with the Normans as well when they from, con- con- sorry, uh, really, sorry, yeah, when when they con- I forget the word here, when they converted, sorry, to Christianity, were they kind of still looked at as, as pagans in a sense or were they you know, Christians now?
0: They were. Really seen as Christians, but there was an awareness that people who are new to Christianity would take time to adopt the full sets of Christian values, and there is considerable concern about apostasy, that is, returning to their original faith, and that indeed does happen in the kind of second and third generations, in the 940s, we hear some rebellions, some of which are actively pagan rebellions, so they're against the ducal authority but also against the Christian faith. So it's by no means a simple kind of one-way traffic towards Christianity, Um, and contemporaries are aware of this as well. They've seen it in other kind of guises. They're well aware it's going to take some time, but there's no doubt that once they are converted, that those that stick with the faith are bona fide uh, Christians, and certainly later Norman accounts build this up to be this really important turning point for them, because that's the moment that then, conversion for them coincides with the creation of Normandy. So later historical accounts being written from the Ducal Court in the late 10th, early 11th centuries, like Saint who's our main narrative history for their early history he very much sees this as the moment when the northmen become normans mm. in that kind of sense that these that they, they, they become a christian people and then they set off on a trajectory that would see them found a glorious duchy and become a leading you know presence in northern france
1: something i wanted to go, talk about before we move on to the norman conquest of europe is that well, what's the hierarchy like in Norman and Norman rule under the, under the Normans? So,
0: in practice, it's taking a while to form, but it's modeled very much on political structures we're seeing elsewhere in Northern France and probably building on them. So, the early Norman, we normally call them dukes to make life easier because we speak of Normandy later as a duchy, but actually, the earliest Norman leaders were being called counts. And that's what most leading French magnates were. So this is a period in the 10th century where royal power is weakening considerably. That's one of the reasons why Charles the Simple settles the Normans there, um, but it doesn't solve that problem in the long term. And in practice, this means that local counts, particularly some leading, leading ones amongst them, are starting to establish what we call territorial principalities. Basically, autonomous or largely autonomous regions where they acknowledge the Overlordship of the king, but in practice, on a daily basis, they run the show completely, have full royal prerogatives and things like that. And so we see this in place like Flanders, famously, um, the county of Flanders emerges quite early and powerfully, which is you know the to the east of Normandy, and the Normans are in regular contact with them. To the south and west of Normandy, the county of Anjou is another early principality that's emerging in these years, and the Norman dukes very much fit into this pattern of establishing themselves establishing autonomy, um, uh, uh, building quite a powerful centralized uh, authority there. They expand their territory to fill basically what's been now modern Normandy. Their original area of settlement was probably about half that size. So they're expanding geographically uh, and and keeping this focus on the dukes. Now, there are some real difficulties in their early years. So the second Norman uh, duke, William Longsword, is killed by the Count of Flanders uh, at a parlay, is, is deceived and killed. And he leaves only a son who is um, a minor. And so that leads to significant upheaval in the 940s, where there's these apostasies, rebellions, and it looks like Normandy might cease to exist. Uh, and it could easily cease to exist. So uh, there's a group I've already alluded to that are settled on the on the Loire in the late 9th century. It looks like they could go on to create, you know, a, a Viking polity on the Loire in the Loire Valley they're snuffed out in the second generation. So, so it's quite possible that, that 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 could have happened. It almost happened Normandy, but it doesn't. And thereafter, they're able to eh, establish a territorial principality, which, as I say, structurally looks very much like the way the County of Anjou was operating, the later Duchy of Aquitaine, uh, the County of Flanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and as kind of part of this consolidation is they start using a slightly more exalted term, Duke, to mm-hmm. refer to themselves. They start conceiving that this is a duchy. And we also see terms like uh, Normania, the Latin term, which literally means Normandy, emerges, the idea that there is a territorial conception of how far our authority runs. So all of these are kind of coming to a head by about the 990s, year 1000. So within about kind of 90 years of their initial settlement, um, uh, we then have a really well, well-established duchy that, in which political authority is quite powerfully centralised on the
1: of of course they aren't just happy with Normandy, are they? So they decided to expand into Europe. So how does the Norman expansion go um, into Europe? And well, how does the Frankish king look at this? I I'm not sure if this is just uh, simple yet yeah, still, but how how does the Frankish king look at the Norman expansion into Europe? So Norman
0: expansion is something that then comes kind of the following century. So the tenth century is the. Century consolidation, the 11th century is when we start seeing Norman expansion into other areas. For the French king, this isn't necessarily great news because it's somebody who's meant to be subservient to him, running their own show. But the French monarch at this point has no real way to object to this, particularly. So there's hints that the French king is not especially happy, particularly, say, with William the Conqueror eyeing up
1: England. He is made... he more a puppet of the Normans, basically? Good.
0: Uh, well, certain, there certainly is a bit of a Norman habit of, of conquest that's established pretty early on, but there's there's doubt the French king is you know not thrilled by this, but there's not much in practical terms. So mm-hmm. some of the attacks he makes when allied with the Count of Anjou in the 1050s, maybe trying to stop William the Conqueror from you know buying up England, which he's already starting to consider. But in practice, there's not much the French monarchs could do to stop them. But the interesting thing is actually these kinds of conquest and expansion starts before William the Conqueror and before the Dukes start really doing so. So the initial period is the duchy itself is expanding and the dukes are expanding their territory in northern France, but it eventually gets to a point where there isn't much further to expand. They're cheap by jowl, particularly with the Counts of Anjou, to their south and west, who are also very powerful. And so they could occasionally take a bit of territory from them, but it's not easy and they're not going to get a lot. Um, but the expansion kind of beyond there initially is not being driven by the dukes, but actually by local Norman magnates, by ambitious magnates, starting particularly in about the 1020s and 1030s, we see mercenary groups, Normans acting as paid mercenaries, in southern Italy. And they probably first come in touch with the region via routes of pilgrimage, the Holy Land, um, uh, and then made a name for themselves as very competent warriors. And so we get these mercenary bands emerging there, and their ranks are probably filled in part because in the 1030s we get yet another moment of um, real political instability in Normandy.
1: Are uh, the Normans joining the Varangian Guard as well when they, when they, they travel to the Holy Land or they just try to skip past? I don't believe
0: there's much evidence of them joining the Varangian Guard, but it's the same kinds of routes that had led to the Varangian Guard coming into existence. And it's a very similar kind of thing. And what we do see is the Byzantines, who are one of the political presences in southern Italy, start recruiting Normans as well. And so we do get Normans fighting as Normans. They're, they're called Franks in the Byzantine sources hmm. in the Byzantine Empire. Um, So a number of prominent groups go from Southern Italy to there. They're active in the Byzantine Empire by the 1040s. So quite quickly, we're getting these groups that are doing these things. The crucial thing is that in Southern Italy, they then start in the 1040s to go on their own and decide to set up shop, stop serving other masters there. They were otherwise employed by Lombard princes, um, that is traditional local Italian princes, or by the Byzantine authorities, and start making conquests of their own in Southern Italy in the 1040s. The Initial progress is not super fast. This isn't a very large group. They're not led by a, a duke or anything like that. They're mostly middling aristocrats uh, uh, of kind of knightly class, broadly, um, who are out there trying to win fame and fortune, a bit like, of course, their ancestors had done in conquering and taking Normandy giving ground granted that. So here's where I think their standard heritage matters. They're no longer speaking Old Norse, but they're aware that their ancestors had come over and conquered Normandy and this is kind of an opportunity to replicate that. But by the 1050s and 60s, they're really picking up Speed there. Substantial parts of southern Italy are in Norman hands by um, uh, the early 1060s. And I think this matters then for when we're looking elsewhere, because William the Conqueror now is Duke of Normandy. The, this initial expansion into these initial groups set up shop in southern Italy, partly during the time when William had just become Duke and he was, a, I think his father dies um, and he's still a boy.
1: But it's so a William bastard as well, isn't the- it? Sorry? He's a bastard exactly. as well.
0: So his father dies without a legitimate heir, um, while William's still a young child. And so this is this other moment of political instability I've alluded to that probably encouraged some of these magnates to leave Normandy. Everything's, you know, chaotic here and set up shop in southern Italy. But by the 1040s, 1050s, to be late to the later 1040s, 1050s, which is when the conquests in southern Italy are really starting to pick up steam, that's also when William is centralising his power and authority. and, I'm and He's sorry well for, aware yeah. of what's going on in Italy. I'm yeah, sorry for really...
1: interrupting you a bit there, but I want to come back to William the Conqueror in a second, but I want, there's something I want to focus on when you mentioned southern Italy, and that is the conquest of uh, Sicily, which I believe at the time would be under Fatimid rule. So how did the Normans, I, I'm sorry for interrupting you again, but I want to come back to William a little bit later, but how did the Normans conquer Sicily?
0: So they conquered Sicily much the way they did southern Italy. So the political situation is quite fractured there. And the crucial thing is that Sicily is under nominal Fatimid overlordship. But in practice, it's been local ruled by local Amirs. And there is, in fact, a dispute there between two different individuals aiming to secure that authority. And what the Romans are able to do is they're able to leverage this. And this is something that we see them doing across the board. It's also what they've done in southern Italy, where there is on the one hand the Byzantine Empire and then these local Lombard princes, often at odds with one another. And they were able to leverage these kind of local disagreements on either side, and then eventually actually conquer the the regions of both. And this is something that they use then again in Sicily. So they become active in Sicily after they've largely completed the conquest of southern Italy, of Apulia and Calabria and Campania, the main areas there that they control. Uh, so that's the kind of boot of Italy, if you will. And then they're looking on, and Sicily is the logical place to expand further with traditional trading and other links to these regions. And at that point, there is this, um, the, this start political division in Sicily itself. And so they're invited over by one of the would-be Amirs to support him. And so they get an open invitation, come over here, uh, and can you support me? They say, oh, thank you very much. Um, very much with an eye, not supporting um, you know one side or the other, but to, again uh, establishing themselves. And within a couple of months of their arrival, it's clear that they're out for conquest, and they're able to slowly eat this up. The thing is, they're not. It's not a quick conquest in southern Italy because the numbers of Normans there, compared to say what we see in England, are much smaller. So the Norman groups are at most at e- only ever a few hundreds, at most a few thousand, low few thousands, you know, um, in these areas.
1: It's quite a large number.
0: Large but not massive, and they're working with a lot of local forces. So we're, more often than not, we're talking about hundreds. and And the other crucial thing is the political divisions of Southern Italy mean they're able to pick people off, but also means they've got lots of enemies to work against simultaneously. It's not like England where they can knock out one king and one kingdom and take it over overnight. So it also means this is a really protracted process. And at the same time that they're conquering Sicily, they're still mopping up some of the conquests in Apulia that are still held being held on by the Byzantine Empire. So that's in that that very boot of Italy uh, um, uh, in terms of that, which is just facing opposite Greece and the Balkans, which are held by the Byzantine Empire. So they still have Byzantine enemies to fight against at times, they're at odds with the popes and so on. So there's other peoples they are often fighting on two fronts here. Um, And so that's why it takes them really quite some time to complete the conquest of Sicily. In fact, it's only completed in 1091. Um, and indeed, at the same time, in the 1080s, for example, um, as some of those Southern Italian Normans are conquering Sicily under the lead of Roger, um, Roger's older brother, who's the kind of overall Norman leader, Robert Guiscard, is busy attacking the Balkans, the Byzantine Empire. There, he's trying to get new conquests there. So there's a lot going on there that means that Sicily is only one piece of the puzzle.
1: So, but it seems to be under under Norman rule. It seems to be rather tolerant religiously there and it would of course later influence the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II but it seemed to be a rather tolerant society there.
0: Yes so the early Norman rule over Sicily which has a substantial Islamic population probably still a minority though, perhaps a majority in some places we don't know the details fully. Of course it had been a region that was Christian conquered by Islamic powers and now is being conquered by a Christian power again. One of the crucial things here is, under Islamic rule, Christianity had been tolerated. Um, Christians had to pay an additional tax. There were pressures to convert, you know, where where appropriate. But plenty of people were able to maintain their Christian faith. So in a sense, the Normans are doing the same in reverse. They're changing the political religion to Christianity. If you want to really move up politically, you now have to convert. And Some advisors do convert, probably quite pragmatically. They do end up with advisors who have been Muslim, um, for example. Um but for most day-to-day people, they continue with their faith as usual. The crucial thing is this is not a kind of toleration in a sense that uh, we might um champion it in a modern multicultural society. They're not aiming for that. There's very much a sense that Christianity, you know, should come tops and within Christianity. And the same goes for right, the
1: Islamic world as well, right? That's you know. Um
0: so there there still is clearly very much divisions there. And a significant element of that toleration is also pragmatic is the Normans are coming in as a small new elite. They need to get the local population on side, which means letting the Christians, obviously, continue to be Christians, and and, uh, uh, privileging them where appropriate, but not completely disenfranchising the Muslim population. So it's it's probably more a matter of pragmatism than any kind of ideology, but they absolutely are happy to do deal with Islamic rulers and Islamic powers, and Sicily has close trading relations with North Africa, so it's in their financial interest to be on good terms with Muslim powers to forge alliances as they do with the rulers of ifriqiya the, the, the province of North Africa, because they can gain a lot financially from them as well as politically.
1: So uh, back to the window uh, the conqueror, sorry for derailing a little bit, but I wanted to talk about the Norman conquest of Sither the first. So next, how how does the con- go about conquering the Because he built a castle, doesn't he? I believe it's would it not be Dover Castle? So, for
0: William, there's kind of two crucial things that are happening that are lead to the conquest of England. On the one hand, there are contacts made between the Norman Ducal Court and the English Royal Court, and these go back to 1002. So these go back to a context in which, in the late 9, late 10th, early 11th centuries, England is experiencing a kind of a new wave of Viking attacks. There have been that first really big one in the late 9th century with that great army. There's now regular attacks on England, by uh, Scandinavian forces particularly some of them, those of Swain Forkbeard for example um, uh, the king of Denmark and these are creating all sorts of problems for the English because England is quite a wealthy kingdom so it's a natural target um, uh, and capable of paying high levels of tribute Mm -hmm. Uh, and so these are the years where Viking groups are regularly going over to England and collecting tribute and making um, a, a nice profit out of this Sometimes they're using ports in Normandy to go there because the natural way to sail to England from, say, Denmark isn't to risk going straight across the seas, but it's actually to hug the coastline. So it's to sail along uh, the low countries and then cross, you know, say, from some of the French ports or from the low countries over to England, or indeed from Normandy. And this is a point at which Normandy has become largely franco, but there still are some speakers of Old Norse probably still around, and there's still a keen awareness of that, kind of old ties that bind Normandy to their northmen, kinsmen in Scandinavia. So some of these raiders, at least um, some of the times, are stopping in Norman ports, because it's just across the channel from England and a good place to, to raid the southern English coast. And so what the English monarch does in response to this problem, at least one of his responses to it, is that he forges a dynastic marriage with the Dukes of Normandy. And so he marries Emma, who's the daughter of the Duke of Normandy. Uh, this breaks all convention in England. He's the first English monarch to marry a, a foreign queen in about 150 years. And it clearly is because he's feeling this real pressing need mm. to f- secure an alliance. And for the Norman Dukes, this is a big deal. It's the first time they married into royalty. They, they're well-connected in the kind of found fam- other families of similar princely status to them. So fellow Dukes and counts, they're, they're, they're married into the you know families of Flanders and things like that, and the Aquitaine. But this is, you know, the next big step that, the, that they have to make. So it's a very good match for them, too. But it's designed to seal those Norman ports to raiders on England. Mm-hmm. The reason why this matters in the long term, though, is it means that we now have a Norman queen in England. And her sons are half-Norman. And this matters because once uh, Ethelred, the then ruler, dies, the English kingdom is actually conquered in the end by the Danish ruler Canute, who's the son of Swain Forkbeard, and who founds a had of an Anglo-Danish North Sea Empire. But Emma of Normandy, the Queen's sons, her sons who are half Norman, half English, and the direct sons of the King of England, then go into exile in Normandy hmm. at their own
1: court. Hmm. But uh, there is a problem though that I would like to address and that while he might be king in England, he's still just a Duke in Normandy, right? So there is that that seemed to be an issue as far as I remember, if I remember correctly, that's there seemed to be a little issue there.
0: Well, yeah, potentially. So there, are the, the, his ambitions are being raised, but the crucial thing is as a result of this, the Norman ducal family is now related to the English royal family. Mm. And so it means that when the English royal family dies out largely, at least in the male line, the form of Edward the Confessor, who is one of those sons who'd been raised in Normandy himself, who would have known William the Conqueror well. William feels he has a strong claim to be his natural heir, although he is Norman and the Norman Duke. And so that's the kind of basis for the Norman claim is, is that dynastic marriage. The other crucial piece of the puzzle as to why they go over to England is those conquests in Italy, is that William the Conqueror is well aware that his, you know, fellow Norman kinsmen mm-hmm. Or winning great prizes in southern Italy, and one of the main accounts uh, of William's life by William of Malmesbury has him express um, says that William expressed the the sentiment that it would be shameful if a man of low if men of lower standing should win such a claim um, and should win more lands than me. So it means that William's really keen to match these kinds of efforts. And then when the English throne becomes vacant, he has his perfect opportunity, and he knows it's going to become vacant for some time because Edward the Confessor, who is his relative, who's on the English throne, has no sons, uh, mm. has no children at all, in fact. So it's known for quite some time that once Edward dies, there's going to be a, a, you know, a, a big question as to who should succeed. And so that mm. opens this possibility for William to come over and conquer. As you say, once he then does so, he then has this odd dual kind of life where, on the one hand, he's Duke of Normandy, nominally un- Duke under the King of France, but is then King of England of his own right. Entirely independent of the French monarch, and so de facto, this means that Normandy is now actually part of a completely different political entity. And although technically, he, you know, William does homage to the French king for Normandy, in practice, the French king has no control whatsoever over Normandy.
1: Now, with this justice in another, see in House of the Dragons, but in, with this justice in the real. Events so that inspired James Thrones episode that the the Targaryens in House of the Dragons they kind of are especially the first Targaryens coming into Westeros they kind of are based on William the Conqueror right and the Normans conquest of Britain.
0: I could see that as yes a, an analogy. Obviously Martin draws on kind of various medieval strains to create mm-hmm. his world and some of his later conquest la- la- later conflicts are traditionally seen as being based upon uh, the Wars of the Roses. There's no doubt that he's drawing on this kind of world. And and if we're thinking of a kind of medieval world of castles and of conquests, of the sorts of things that you see explored often in in fantasy, like, you know, uh, Game of Thorns and Thrones and Hugs of Dragons, things like that, um, we're thinking of the kind of central medieval world created probably by the Normans. And so kind of one of the things that, for example, the Norman Conquest brings to England and the Normans bring to England is castles. There were fortifications in England previously, but specific castles of, of that kind of aristocratic nature really focusing on lordly domination of the countryside, Mm. or something that comes in with the Normans to England. They come with the Normans also to Wales and to Scotland and to Ireland, so they are important in terms of exporting many of these kinds of cultural forms that have been cultivated in northern France, uh, to particularly British Isles.
1: Something that we have to talk about, of course, is the crusades and the Norman's role in the Crusades. And there is one particular character. We talked about him before we started recording as well, and that is Bohemian. And he is featured heavily in Alexia. I believe a few books actually on or at least one book on Bohemian. And she has marvelous he has this marvelous escape where he plays pretends to be dead and he escapes to a ship with rotten corpses above him. And how is this a story by Anna Comnini relatable? And how does Norman, the bo- Bohemian really, what is a real Bohemian like compared to Anna Comnini? In, in quotations, the real bo- Bohemian. Okay, so yes, as you say, what
0: we have is, we have in, in Bohemond, we have this fascinating figure. He's from the family of the Normans who've conquered southern Italy and Sicily. So he's the son of Robert Giscard there, but he's from his first marriage and he's therefore not lined up as his heir because Robert goes on to marry a local Lombard princess to kind of legitimate his rule over southern Italy. So Beaumont's in this unfortunate scenario where he's from what's becoming an exalted line, this Hauteville family that are dominating southern Italy, but his own prospects aren't very good. His father's edging him out of the succession of his brothers. He's clearly not very happy about this and rebels at various points, but he's not able to stop it. And so this is what makes the Bohemond therefore, want to seek his fortune elsewhere. And when the First Crusade's called, he's very happy to join up, because he doesn't have much land and wealth in southern Italy, and he believes he deserves it. And he's already, by this point, known for being a very resourceful and successful warrior. And so he figures in a very large way, as you say, in uh, Anna Comnena's Alexia, which is all about the life of her father, Alexios, who's the Byzantine emperor in this period, who in fact partly calls the crusade, First Crusade, asks for help, um, and so on. And those two clearly had a very interesting and fraught relationship, but, uh, but quite an interesting one, because Bohemond, by virtue of being born in southern Italy, almost certainly speaks some Greek, so communicate directly with them, and they end up becoming great rivals in many respects. They're very wary of one another. Bohemond is one of these individuals who puts Bovum on first. He goes on, first, on the First Crusade because he sees an opportunity for fame, fortune, and advancement. Um, he probably also sees it as a good way of doing so in the name of the faith, but it, it's very clear that fame, fortune, and advancement is what he's about. And so, you know, most infamously with First Crusade, once they've conquered Antioch, he says, yeah, great job, chaps, I'm staying here, I'm going to keep Antioch. And refuses to go any further. So he he ne- never goes on the group that t- takes Jerusalem. Hey, wait but, a minute, that's our claims. But um, but you know, but um but all of this therefore seeps through though um Anna's depiction of him because she is fascinated by it. It sounds like really she has this, a bit of a crush on him, to be honest. Almost she it's I think grudging respect is the thing. Because Bohemond takes Antioch against the wishes of the Byzantines who should be getting it, and really throughout his entire time in East He's trying to get one up on Alexios, partly because he has unfinished business with him. Is Bohemond had, alongside his father, invaded the Balkans twice in the 850s, and they've been defeated in the end by Alexios in his very earliest years. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's good in Bohemond's mind with the Crusades, this might be a vehicle to getting one back at the Byzantines rather than actually helping them as they're meant to. At least one of our sources says that when he first lands in Greece, he actually tries to make an alliance with uh, one of the other crusaders, Baldwin, to attack Constantinople first. And only when he couldn't generate interest for that does he decide to properly join the crusade. And certainly then in later years, he, during the crusade, is trying to you know, take lands for himself and ends up succeeding in taking Antioch, again against Alexios's wishes. He then ends up as a result of that in conflict with Alexios. He goes back to France in 1106-7 to recruit more crusaders for a holy war. But not a holy war against, you know, um, uh, Islamic forces in the Holy Land. A holy war against Alexios, the Byzantine emperor, and he marches them up into Byzantine territory and is then defeated. But, but fundamentally, he's constantly aiming for that. And this probably goes back as say, to unfinished business, earlier defeats. But also, some of our sources say that his father Robert Guiscard had wanted to conquer the Byzantine Empire, and you get a sense that this is what Bohemond's trying to do. Um, And in some respects, not always coming too far from it. He creates all sorts of problems for them. But that's one of the reasons why, then, for Anna, it's quite important for her. She's clearly fascinated by him. He clearly created lots of problems for them. So there's this grudging admiration. But also, it suits her narrative purposes to have him be really resourceful and powerful and successful. Because then her father must have been all the more so to defeat Mm -hmm. him. Because he was the man who outwitted the wittiest and most intelligent of them all he's the man who managed to, for the most part channel the first crusade in the long term bohemond is not successful with his ventures so she also kind of has a vested interest in terms of her own narrative to big him up but there's no it's not only her who does so most of our accounts do suggest he was kind of a force of nature and was known for being particularly resourceful very tricky at times uh, a good man in a bind but also someone you couldn't trust further than you could throw, because mm. ultimately Bohemond was interested in Bohemond and really no one else.
1: Mm. And I'm sure there's more, but we don't have time to cover everything. And one, I one I might have a description of a few events here, but one did we Consider the Normans, so in, for the lack of a better word, for, for completely Frenchified, in that sense.
0: In cultural senses, the Normans are pretty much completely. French by, certainly by the 1020s, 1030s. So, even already by the time that, you know, um, the, the later, the, the late sort of Anglo Saxon king Edward the Confessor, he lives most of his life before he becomes king in England in exile in, in Normandy. And when he comes back to England, one of the things that English sources resent is his, the favor he shows to what they call Frenchmen. And that's most of these Frenchmen are actually Normans, but some of them are French. But the point is that culturally, there's nothing to distinguish them, really. Um, uh, in terms of that, that there's not much to distinguish someone from just within the Norman-Dutch in just without by that period. So by that point, uh, if not a bit earlier, they're 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 thoroughly Christian, culturally thoroughly French. You know, as they, they've picked up castles and things have been developing elsewhere in France at the same time. Knightly culture is something that's developing in Normandy alongside other regions of France. But I think the thing that sets them slightly aside is the fact that they are always keenly aware of their heritage. That they may be culturally French now, but that they came here hmm. as Northmen and that that's always still there in their name as Normans. And so I think that's one of the things that does inspire them um, to go on these kinds of conquests, makes them willing to risk perhaps slightly more than some of their neighbours, is the fact that they know they only got to where they are now by such risks. They in a sense have a model for success before they even head to southern Italy. And then once the conqueror is trying to go to England, well he has two models for success. We came over and conquered Normandy, Our, you know, our own kinsmen are busy conquering southern Italy. Who's to say we can't conquer England? Mm. Uh, I think that kind of has a knock on effect as well, even in terms of the First Crusade. The large Norman contribution there, again, who's to say we can't do it? We've already done it in England. We've done it in Normandy. We've done it in southern Italy.
1: So... So something that you mentioned earlier in the episode, and we repeated repeated this a few times, is the castles was Norman sort of invention, in a sense. But it's fascinating to me, because in, in Norway especially, where a lot of the Normans came from, um, we don't have any castles in Norway. We do have some in Sweden, but we don't have any castles in Norway, so it's fascinating how this began, that they came up with the idea in France, but you don't, like you said, we don't really have it here in Norway.
0: Yeah, so well, the crucial thing is it's not really a Norman invention. It's something that's developing in France Mm. Mm. shortly after they settled there. So it's really gaining prominence in the late 10th into the 11th centuries, and so it's happening in Normandy at the same time as it's happening in, say, Anjou or indeed in Flanders in the Low Countries. So it's not unique to Normandy. But what it means is so it's a, a a kind of French. Invention, if you will, development of earlier practices of fortification, that then norm, the Normans become one of the leading exporters of.
1: Hmm. So, but it's just fascinating that they didn't bring it back to kind Scandinavia and have built castles there hmm. as well.
0: No, no, but mean, but they're not trying to conquer Scandinavia hmm. actually in terms of that. So the the in terms of those kinds of uh, manners, and by the time they are really building castles in a large scale. We're talking about probably the 10 20s, 30s, 40s. And by that point, the contacts between Normandy and Scandinavia have pretty much severed. So the last event direct contacts between the two are, I think, from about 1015, is the last time we have a, a Viking force come over to Normandy in a way that suggests an alliance with local deep. So thereafter, they're aware they came from Scandinavia, but that's just a point of origin. It has kind of nothing to do with their day-to-day alliances or things like that. A bit like, you know. Uh, the modern United States, its mm. politics are not dictated by the fact, in any material way, by the fact that it was once a British colony. It's mm. kind of moved so far beyond that yeah. that now it's a it's a thing a thing that's known historically that's part of the heritage, but it's no longer part of the kind of daily life.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about the But before you go, do you have any social media, any links you want to put in the description? Or where can people buy your book? Should they be interested in reading more about the nonce? Which you absolutely should. Well, um, uh,
0: I am uh, uh, on Twitter if people do want to uh, chase me up or ask me questions with, with the handle at Dr. L. Roach. Um, My book is Empires of the Normans, which is trying to kind of tell that story of the Normans in in all of those various different regions rather than just the story of, you know, the Norman conquest of one of those areas. Um, And probably their best bet is simply to wherever they're based. Google it and look for local bookshops and local providers, but it should be easily available uh, anywhere where English language books are being sold.
1: Thank you so much for coming on again. It's been a pleasure. My name is Alan. We are available on uh, Instagram, and number that, H12. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are an Apple Podcast, it would be great if you could write a little review of us. That would be tremendous. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.